Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these people that have gathered together to hear from you. And I pray that you, not I, would speak to them. Lord, I pray that your word would come alive to them. Lord, I pray that you would enliven hearts to yourself. Lord, help us to desire you more. Uh, Part of the great sickness of our sin and of our state is that we don't desire you. We don't find our joy in you. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, enliven our hearts to enjoy you above all else. And everything else, Lord, will take care of itself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the best place to start with this story, and I told you I'm going to talk fast, is um, start with Abraham. So about 2000 BC, God comes to Abraham, calls him out of the, the city of Ur, and tells him, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And, um, and he promises that one day a descendant would come from Abraham that would bless all nations. And Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and I think there's a song about that that we won't sing. But Jacob had a favorite. He played favorites with his um, son Joseph. The other brothers realized that. They got really jealous. They ended up taking Joseph and selling him to some slave traders. The slave traders took him to Egypt and sold him into slavery there. Time passes, eventually Joseph um, gets out of slavery and actually rises to a really high level of authority within Egypt right under Pharaoh. A little bit later, plague comes, uh, actually a famine comes, and uh, the family, the brothers that had sold them into slavery, they're hungry, they come to Egypt to beg for food, and who do they run into? The person in charge is their brother that sold them into slavery. He doesn't kill them which is amazing. He feeds them, and the whole family comes to live inside of Egypt. That's how they ended up in Egypt. Originally, it was they were spared from a famine. And so if you look at Exodus 1.5, it says that there were a total of 70 people in the family when they came to live in Egypt. Over the next 400 years, though, their population exploded. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. And this is the beginning of God's promise being fulfilled to Abraham to make him a great nation. And there was this exponential growth. And that exponential growth really terrified Pharaoh. And look at verse 8 in chapter 1. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they will join with our enemies and fight against us and escape our land. They had an immigrant problem, uh, really common right now in Western nations, where there was a people that was growing within their nation. They weren't sure about their uh, patriotism. They weren't sure if they were really on our side or not. And so what Pharaoh did is he started to subjugate those people. And there were a lot of them. The first um, census that they took after the Exodus says that there were over 600,000 fighting men. Okay, so they went from 70, and they have 600,000 fighting men. That doesn't include young boys that can't fight, old men that can't fight, or any women or or girls. I mean, this was a huge nation at this point. And out of fear of the Jews, Pharaoh developed this system of oppression. Look at verse 13 in chapter 1. It says, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their life bitter with hard service, with mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so where we pick up the story right now is about 1400 BC, about 1400 years before Christ. They've been in slavery for many years, and their their situation is intolerable. 
Okay? And so when we begin chapter 2, we see the first glimmer of hope. Take a look at chapter 2. In chapter 2 there, you see Moses is born. Moses is born to a Hebrew family, and this is going to be the rescuer. But he shouldn't have even survived, right? Because part of the system of oppression that the, that the uh, Egyptians had created is they would kill the, the, um, the male Hebrew children during that time. They started killing off the male Hebrew children as a way of kind of population control. But Moses' mother, it says, saw something special about Moses. Of course, like what Jewish mother doesn't see something special about her son, right? Sees that he's a special child. And so she wants to save him and she makes a little boat out of a basket and puts him in the Nile. At least she won't have to watch him die, right? Just send him off in the Nile and hopefully something will happen. Well, it just so happens that Pharaoh's um, daughter is downstream. He sees this baby and for whatever reason she takes compassion on him. Eventually she adopts him. She calls him Moses, which means to be taken out because he was taken out of the river. And you might be thinking this. You might be thinking, oh, I see what God's doing. He needs to get his people freed. So he's going to have one of the Hebrews adopted by the royal family. He's going to grow up. He'll have political power. He'll set him free, right? No. It's not what happens. Uh, Moses actually ends up, when he's about 40 years old, he ends up throwing away all the political power he could have. It's because he had a hot temper. This guy had an incredibly hot temper. One day when he was 40, Moses saw an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew slave, and he beat the guy to death. And buried him in the sand. And he thought his, his murder was hidden. Later on he finds out it is and he gets afraid. He runs to Midian. Hundreds of miles away from Egypt in what is modern day Saudi Arabia. And he runs there. And you're thinking to yourself, this is God's rescuer? This guy who beats people to death and hides their bodies in the sand and when he's discovered runs away? This is God's rescuer? And Moses settles down in Midian, he gets married, and he has a family, and he tends sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro, who's a really solid guy, by the way. It seems like they're more friends than anything. Like, they're really good buddies, and he's like, hey, want to marry my daughter? I really like you, you know? And so he, he tends sheep that whole time. For 40 years, it's a happy life, right? But the things in Egypt aren't happy. During that time in Egypt, things get worse and worse. Chapter 2, verse 23 says that during those days, that that king died, and the people groaned. Israel groaned because of their slavery, and their cry for help rose up to God. Moses, guys, is done with his people. He's moved on. He found a new life. He found a peaceful place where he doesn't have to hear their cries, right? But God's not done. God hears their cries. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 24. It says, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Circle those words in your Bible. He heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. Isn't that awesome? Even when Moses is done with him, God's not done with him. He hears. Uh, Moses had moved on, and, and he was you know, starting a new life, but God heard. And I wanted to say to you guys, this is the first time that God's mentioned in Exodus. And you could imagine that those people pretty much thought that God had moved on from them. They've been in slavery for 400 years. They've been crying out for generations. Um, they must have thought that God was done with them the way Moses was done with them. But God isn't done with them. Guys, when God is silent, it does not mean he's absent. He was silent during that time, but he heard, he saw, he remembered, he knew. And God's going to keep his promise to Abraham to deliver his people in spite of the fact that his people are in the clutches of the, the biggest ancient superpower there is. I mean, they're in a bad spot. They're, they're enslaved by the superpower of the day. And he's going to rescue them in spite of the fact that they're a largely unbelieving people. You'll find that they, they don't tend to believe when, when Moses comes. 
The success of the exodus is going to be based on God's power and character, not theirs. And so God calls up his rescuer again, right? Look at chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flocks on the west side and came to Horeb, the mount of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning but was not consumed. He's like, I've seen some weird things out here. This is very weird. And Moses says, I will turn aside to see this great sight and why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals for the place where you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. And then listen to what the Lord says, very similar to what I already read, but he said this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And then listen to this, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. You notice that he's, he's heard and now he's coming down. And I will bring them out of the land to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. Guys, Moses is a very unlikely rescuer. God tends to do that kind of thing. He's an unlikely rescuer because he's thrown away all the influence he had. I mean, you think, like, what good is he to God now? He's murdered somebody, wanted for murder back in Egypt. He's, he's thrown away his influence. He's a guy that has a huge character flaw. This guy has a hot temper. I mean, anybody that, you know, sees something and beats people to death has a hot temper. And he dealt with this throughout his life. And, guys, he has a weird resume. You know, if people are going to line up and go, hey, I'll be the rescuer, you know, what have you been doing? Uh, I've been tending sheep for 40 years. You got anything else? No? Okay. And the other thing is, is that he's old. Moses, guys, is 80 years old now. He's an 80-year-old man, and he's not particularly interested in the job. (laughs) You know, imagine going to a job interview. I've been in one of these before. It was a job I didn't want. Some friends wanted me to take it. And the whole interview was, like, turned around where they're like, I'm like, you know, I don't really think I'd be good at this. I don't really feel like doing it, you know. Oh, but it'll be good. You should try it. I think you would be good at it. I actually had an interview like that. That's this kind of interview, right? No, 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 you should do this. Moses offers some resistance. He says, they won't listen to me. And so God says, that's not a problem. I'm going to give you some signs. First sign is, to see that staff? Throw it down. It'll become a snake. They don't like that one. You could put your hand inside your cloak and you pull it out. It'll be leprous. You put it back in, it'll be fine. You got this cool hand trick you can do, right? And then he says, you know, if they don't listen to that, you could take some water out of the Nile. You could pour it out. It'll just be blood all over the ground. They're going to listen to you. And he goes, oh, you know, that's pretty good. And then he says, but you know, I can't speak. I can't speak. And he goes, oh, that's not a problem. I'm going to send your brother Aaron with you. He can speak. Aaron's 83, by the way. Okay? There's something in this story about if you think that somehow you're too old to, you know, be used in a significant way by God, he's sending 80 and 83-year-old dudes to go rescue them out of Egypt. He can, he can work through you. And I love how God, at the very end, he wins Moses over the plan. He's headed out to go to Egypt. And the last thing God says to him is, oh, great. Hey, I'm glad you're doing this. Um, by the way, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and make this a real showdown. And Moses is like, what? You didn't mention that in the beginning, you know, but it's too late. He's off, right? He's off. And so Moses comes to Pharaoh. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they said, Thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, let my people go. Right? The Charlton Heston line. <laughs> Excellent. And Pharaoh says what? He's, he's totally arrogant. He said, why should I do that? Look at verse 2. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let the people go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And this made things worse for the Jews, right? 
And Pharaoh says, okay, from now on, don't give them straw to make their bricks. And they let them find their own straw. And they have to make exactly the same amount of bricks. And they're not going to have any straw to make of it. They have to gather the straw maybe early in the morning. And then still make the same amount of bricks. And the Jews guys are mad at Moses. Okay, he's come in here. Their situation was, worse, was bad. Now it's worse. Look at verse 21 in chapter 5. They say to Moses, you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. And then Moses is mad at God. Look at verse 22. Listen to the way he talks to God. This is dangerous. Don't do this. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Careful. Like, probably not a good idea. Back down. God's cure, guys, seems worse than the disease. Have you guys ever prayed for relief from suffering or out of a situation and God made it worse? I have. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been like, Lord, I really need help out here? And then the next day you're like, not that kind of help. Right? That's what's happening here. Sometimes God's path out of suffering is through more suffering. And that's what's happening to these people here. But God will deliver them. And so we have this showdown begins, right? Verses chapter 7 through 13 is about the ten plagues. God's going to gradually break down Pharaoh's resistance through a series of ten plagues. And the plagues are this. First, he turns the Nile into blood, and the fish die, and it's disgusting. They can't drink the water. Then he brings frogs, and frogs are everywhere. Oh, frogs are cute. You know, some people collect frogs. You don't want to collect them in your house. You don't want to collect them in your food. You don't want them, you know, in your bed. I mean, they're everywhere, and you're stepping on them. We had, like, a plague of frogs growing up at our house for some reason, and they were, like, all over the road, and we were running them over and stuff. Not intentionally, but what are you going to do? I mean, got to get by. And then there were the gnats. You guys know what gnats are? They're really small, tiny little things. They're very annoying. And it, the crazy thing was is that the, the magicians of Pharaoh could make the other things but couldn't make the gnats. So they were like, surely this is the finger of God, the gnats. You know, they were like very convinced at that point. And then there were the flies. And they were only on the Egyptians, flies all over the place. And then there were the, the livestock dying, um, only the Egyptians' livestock. And then there were hideous boils on their skin, and then there was hail only landed in the Egyptian area, and then there were locusts. And I was thinking about this yesterday. Do you guys realize that God is extremely fond of insects? We see that in this plague. Do you guys realize that over 80% of the animal species are in the class insecta? 80% of the animal species are in the class insecta. Do you guys realize, did you know, that there are 200 million insects on this planet for every human? So for every human, there's 200 million insects. Do you guys realize that there are 300 pounds of insect for every pound of human on this planet? Yeah. And what God's doing is here is he's giving the Egyptians their full 300 pounds of insects each per pound, right? And then there's darkness, and the darkness goes only on the Egyptian area, and then there's the death of the firstborn. And people have tried to explain this through natural causes, and I think these are fun to read, you know? Um, it starts with, you know, it probably wasn't a real miracle. What happened is there was an algae bloom in the Nile, kind of a red tide type thing, made it toxic, fish die, frogs come out, which I think is a great start. I, I'm totally good with that. That sounds really cool. But then the next thing is, is, you know, the frogs leave, and because the frogs leave, then there's gnats increase because the frogs aren't eating them, and then the flies increase because of all the dead frogs, and then the livestock die of natural diseases like blue tongue and African horse sickness and things like that because of the unsanitary conditions. Uh, then there's boils. You can see why that is. This is a disgusting place. Everybody's getting boils. 
But then the hail doesn't really fit. I don't know how the hail comes in because it's gross, hail falls. There's no good biological connection there. Um, the locusts come, the darkness. Darkness could be related to the locusts because you got a ton of locusts in the sky and it gets dark. And then the death of the firstborn, I love this one because, you know, they run out of food and they theorize maybe there was some toxic mold in the grain supplies and you feed your firstborn first because I guess you let the other ones die. You feed the firstborn first. So they would have eaten the toxic, you know, grain and died. And it goes on, guys. You know, the Red Sea, it was a shallow area, and there was a tidal thing that happened. And, and I've even heard things with, you know, the burning bush. It was probably like a natural gas or volcanic vent where there's some... And, you know, the voice, I even read this. This is great. This was in The Guardian, which, you know, probably not the best place to get your biblical commentary. Um, I don't normally get it there. But there was a thing, you know, the voice. It was probably Moses using, you know, hallucinogenic plants, right? And so... To all this, I would say, well, I'll tell you what, it was awesome timing, right? Like, you know, like all these things just kind of happen really well-timed. I'd say, it's really awesome timing, maybe even miraculous timing, um, but God gives it, portrays it as a miraculous work. And for us to think through how it could happen biologically and all that is a very modern way of thinking about the plagues. We actually need to put our minds into the way they thought about it. What did the Jews then and the Hebrews and the, uh, and the Egyptians there, how did they see the plagues? And you know how they saw these plagues? Not as arbitrary disasters. They saw it as the battle of the gods. That's the way they would have viewed it. Those Jews and the, and the Egyptians would have seen it as the battle of the gods. And I'll give you just a couple examples. The Nile turning to blood. The Nile was the Egyptians' whole source of life. The Nile to them was a god to them. And so when you turn it into blood, it doesn't just make things icky and inconvenient, right? What it is, is it's God defeating one of their gods, the Nile. Another example, a great one, is the second one, the plague of the frogs. The frogs come out, and they're multiplying, you know, like rabbits. They're everywhere. Why the frogs? Well, the Egyptians had a goddess of fertility who had a head of a frog. Very attractive. So she had this head of a frog. And so God is showing that he can control and use their goddess as he wills. That she's just a puppet to him. Even more shocking, guys, would be the ninth one, the plague of darkness. And it was only over the Egyptians and there was sunlight on the Jews. This would have been the most upsetting to them because the direct attack on their highest god, Ra, the sun god. They believed that Ra was the one who brought the sun out and brought it across the sky. They also believed that Pharaoh was God's son, the son of Ra. And so when there's darkness over them and stuff, it's showing that the god of the Jews, the god of the slaves, can make it light and day and Ra is just a plaything to him. So these aren't just random disturbances. This is a battle of the gods. This is showing the God of Israel, the God of the slaves, invading the home turf of this ancient superpower and beating their gods up like crazy. I mean, this is what it is. It's days on end of their gods being beaten up. He's breaking down the gods they trust in and showing them to be weak substitutes for the real God. And I want to ask you this weird question. In 2016, have your gods failed you? You know, have your gods failed you in 2016? I mean, we don't worship gods like the Egyptians did. We're, like, way too sophisticated for that, right? What we do, though, worship and serve our own set of idols, right? We have our own set of idols that we worship and serve, that we trust in, just like the Egyptians did, except we don't have statues for them. They're things like financial security. You know, we trust in that. Uh, approval of others. Um, desire for relationships. Uh, maybe our marriage or our kids. Maybe it's our appearance. Maybe it's our status, uh, I mean, we idolize our comfort or control or pleasure or some sort of substance or our, you know, our work, our career, and that we ascend the ladder, right? 
we all have our own gods. We, we're a little bit better at hiding them. We don't make statues of them, but we have our own gods. Things that we make, they're good things, guys, really, that we make ultimate things. And I've used this example before, but like to desire a good thing is an open hand, right? I could have an open hand about um, my family and about you know, my status and about my comfort and about my financial security. And if, if God gives or he takes away, there's going to be some pain there, but I'm not undone because I've got an open hand towards it. It's, just, it's a desire, right? But what happens with idols is it gradually, it goes from being a desire to we think a need. We start to curl our hands in around that thing, right? It's something that no longer is just a desire, a want. It's something I need. It becomes my precious, I must have. Okay, now some of you guys think this just got weird. Some of you guys seen Lord of the Rings and stuff, so you know who that is, okay? That's Gollum, right? And it's a great picture of idolatry, isn't it? That we hold on so tightly to some things, it has symptoms, it destroys us. You think about Gollum, he was a cute little hobbit before. I don't know if you guys realize that. And he's decayed over time and gotten more and more disgusting as his precious has destroyed him. And that's what happens with our idols. I had this um, diagnostic question in the back of my Bible that I'll ask myself sometimes when I'm, you know, really dealing with internal difficulties. And, and this is what I, I read it to myself, and it's this. What do you want so badly today that it's making you depressed, anxious, covetous, bitter, or angry? What's making you sick of soul? That's the idol you need to repent of today. Pray and confess it to your Father. And I've read that so many times before and thought, okay, and the Lord has revealed an idol to me, and I can just, I can turn from that thing, guys. Like the gods of the Egyptians, these things promise us ultimate joy and peace that we seek, but no matter how hard we serve them, they never deliver what they promise. They lie. They're too weak. And sometimes God in his mercy will cause our idols to fail us in a big way, like, like the Egyptians' gods were failing them during the plagues, so that we can see that only God can give the joy and peace and security that, 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 that we desire. And so have your gods failed you in 2016? The idols you trusted in, did they not deliver? That's always a painful experience, but it's God's mercy. God's extending to these people for this time, both the Egyptians and the Jews. He's extending to them um, insight that these idols will not satisfy. And so, guys, it's, it's an opportunity for us to, to change, to, to turn away from our idols, to, to leave them in the dirt. And I'll tell you what, and you guys know this, when you turn from idols, you feel so much better. You feel so much better. And so the plagues that finally sent the Jews out of Egypt was the 10th plague, and it's in chapter 11, verse 4. The death of the firstborn, Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die, and the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who works behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, and there should be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been before or ever will be again. And then the end, it ends with, And Moses left in hot anger. You know, you see it again. But before God sent that 10th plague, guys, he gave his people specific directions on how to avoid it, how to not be destroyed along with it. Why? Because the Jews deserve it as much as the Egyptians. Guys, we all deserve God's wrath because of our sin, and the Jews deserve God's wrath just as much as the Egyptians did. And so he gives them very specific directions on how to escape it. It's in chapter 12, verse 5. He said, you shall take a lamb. Without blemish, a male, one year old. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. And you shall take the blood from the lamb. And you shall put it on the two doorposts of your home and on the lintel of your house. 
Passover doesn't celebrate that way anymore, is it? Not that part. It'd be creepy to the neighbors, right? But the way, just imagine this first Passover, guys. Imagine taking this perfect, you know, innocent lamb, slaying it, having it die in your place, then taking the blood and smearing it on your doorposts, and then huddling inside that night, knowing that the wrath of God is going to pass over your house and enter other houses. And he said, don't leave. Stay inside all night. Stay inside under that protection. And then chapter 12, verse 29 says, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone had not died. Then he summons Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and take your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. And so the, the, the Jews roll out of Egypt, right? The Egyptians are desperate to have them leave. But shortly after, Pharaoh changes his mind. He pursues them. They get backed up to the Red Sea. God has Moses part the Red Sea. The Hebrews walk over it on dry land. And then as the Egyptians try to follow, God closes up the sea and destroys them. And the whole thing ends with this amazing scene of worship in chapter 15 where they're worshiping on the other shore. And guys, it's super charismatic worship. Okay, it's super charismatic worship with singing and dancing and Miriam smacking a tambourine. They're celebrating because they've been free. They're finally free, hundreds of years, and they're free. And so in closing, I want to go, how does this relate to us? You know, I've drawn some already, but how does this relate to us? So I have some real brief ways. Guys, it relates to us in that Jesus is the greater Moses who's come to give us the true exodus. In Jesus, we have God saying, I've seen your affliction, I have heard your cry, I know your suffering, and I've come down to deliver, right? In Jesus, we see that. Secondly, Jesus has shown us the weakness of our gods, those idols we put our hope in. When you see the glory of Jesus, guys, in his cross and resurrection, it exposes how weak and foolish our idols are. We don't just let go of them because we see the harm they do. We let go of them because we see something better, Jesus, and we go, I don't want that, I want him. That's the way to change. These things are too weak to provide the joy and peace that we want. Jesus is better. Third, Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He is the true Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that. He's the true Passover lamb whose blood protects us from the greater plagues to come. Guys, it's no coincidence that Jesus offered himself when? On Passover weekend. He made sure to coordinate his death in Jerusalem on Passover weekend to show himself to be the true Passover lamb. On the cross, Jesus was our innocent substitute, that lamb of God who died in our place to take away our sins. And when you trust in him, he will protect you from the wrath to come. You guys have read the book of Revelation? Book of Revelation has plagues in it. Plagues are very similar to the ones that came upon Egypt. There is a wrath of God to come. And there is only one way to escape the wrath of God, and it's for God to pass over you, to find your shelter in, under the blood of Jesus. Just like that blood was smeared on those doorposts of the home and they could be in there, they could be huddled in there and be safe and just know that wrath was not coming into their house. When we trust in Christ, we, we find ourselves underneath his blood, metaphorically, so that when we trust in him, the true Passover lamb, we're safe from the judgment of God. Isn't that an awesome feeling? To just know that you're protected, you're in Christ, and that God's wrath 
has already passed over you. Fourth, Jesus gives us the true exodus, freedom from a greater bondage to sin. In Romans 6, Paul talks about this. He says, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we need to consider ourselves free. He says, sin will have no dominion over you. And I love New Year's Day, guys. I don't know if you guys realize this, but like New Year's Day is one of my favorite holidays. Like it really ranks right up there with Christmas and Easter. I know that sounds odd because it's not even like, you know, like, it's not a real holiday, man. It's the beginning of a new year. Now, the reason I love it is because it's a reminder of the gospel. It's a reminder that there's a fresh start in Jesus. You know, as we think of like a fresh year, it's a psychological thing. It's true. But there's a fresh year, a fresh start, and we have a fresh start in Christ. It reminds us, too, of our freedom in Jesus. You know, people make resolutions. There are things they don't want. They did last year. They don't want to do this year. And we can know that in Christ, any resolution that you make based on a biblical command, you can keep all year by the power of the Spirit. Now, the wording's very important there. Any resolution you make that's based on a biblical command, you can keep all year by the power of the Spirit. Like, that's something that's ours because Jesus has given us the greater exodus. And I know that can be hard to believe, especially when your sins beat you down for a long time. You guys know in in, uh, chapter 6, verse 9, when Moses said, hey, I'm going to rescue you guys out of here. God's going to get you out of here. You know what they said to him? They said this. Moses spoke thus to the people, listen to this, but they didn't believe Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. They just couldn't imagine what it would be like to be free. They were born slaves. They'd always lived slaves. The same thing. It always oppressed them. They couldn't imagine. I know that's the case for some of you. The same sin. You know, like I tried before. This thing just beats me down. There's no way to like kill this thing. But there's an exodus available in Jesus. Often, guys, the, the initial problem is that we think too much like slaves. You know, we still have a slave mindset. When they went into the wilderness, and they, they weren't even out that long, okay? The Red Sea thing, and then they're wandering around, and they get hungry, okay? They're hungry, and then they're like, why did you bring us out here? He goes, why didn't we just stay in Egypt? And you know what they say? They go, in Egypt, there was plenty to eat. We just sat around pots of meat. You sat around pots of meat. What is this, like a cruise? They were slaves, They didn't sit around anything, right? But their mindset was a slave mindset. Let's go back. There's food there. You know, one of the things God needs to do is is to show us that we could have true freedom from things like pornography or judging other people or medicating with drugs or alcohol or food um, from bitterness. I mean, a lot of people carry a lot of bitterness. You think, how much of your year last year did you carry around bitterness? From joylessness. I mean, with fruit of the Spirit is joy. We... That we could be free from joylessness. We could be free from gossip. We could be free from anger. We could be free from fear. We could be free from comparison. We could be free from all of these things. That's what the new year 2017 offers in Christ, is increasing freedom from sin. And, and I, I have this, um, I usually kind of make this heart change goal. I didn't do it last year. I don't know why. But this is, this is a, a sentence that I sometimes will construct, and I think it'd be helpful for you guys. Fill this sentence out. By the end of 2017, I want God to make me the kind of person who naturally, fill in the blank, instead of the kind of person who naturally, fill in the blank, right? So it could sound like this. By the end of 2017, I want God to make me the kind of person who naturally, that means heart change, uh, who naturally is patient with my family, instead of the kind of person who naturally has outbursts of anger, Or I want God by the end of 2017 to make me the kind of person who naturally turns to prayer and to the word instead of turning to substances to medicate myself, you know? Or you could say, by the end of 2017, I want God to make me the kind of person who naturally assumes the best in people instead of being the kind of person who naturally judges them. 
I mean, think about what that thing is. You know, ask the Lord today. You know, uh, Psalm 139 says, search me and know me. Show me if there's any wicked way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. See what he would have you to, to, um, to, to have as a goal this year. As we want to pack up and move out. You know, these, these, Egypt, these Jews, they packed up out of Egypt and they moved out. You know, if you've had a year where all kinds of sin has kind of entangled you, consider 2016 Egypt, right? We're going to leave and we're going to have new ways of life. Jesus offers that. And in the wilderness, guys, the Jews learn to live as God's distinct people. And he takes them to, the, to Mount Sinai and he gives them the commands. And I think sometimes we have the wrong idea that like somehow those commands were to earn salvation or something. They were already saved. The, the, the commands on Sinai were not so that they could deliver themselves. They'd already been delivered. And they weren't to earn a relationship with God. He was already calling him his son. They were so that they could learn to live as God's distinct people. And then very lastly, Jesus has given us the presence of the Father. I love this because the Jews didn't go out alone, right? How did they go out? How did they know God was with them? Yeah, so at night they had this pillar of fire, pretty straightforward. And then during the day they had this pillar of smoke that led them along. You think, like, how, why did they rebel so much? Like, this is pretty obvious science. Yeah, well, apply it to yourself, you know? Um, but uh, he didn't go, they didn't go out alone. God called them his son collectively, and he, and he led them out. And that's where we are today, guys, as Christians. We are in the land of wandering on the way to the promised land. We have not made it to the promised land. The promised land is a real land. It's this world made new. But in this time in our life, we're, we're wandering in the wilderness we're trying to live as God's distinct people in a land of idols. And there will be battles, right? There's battles with your sin. There's battles with your self-reliance. You remember with the Israelites, when they trusted in God's power, what happened when they went to battle? It said, he said, if you will trust me, they will flee from you in seven directions. I don't even know how you can believe in seven directions, right? And then he said, if you don't trust in me, you will flee from them in seven directions, right? And it's the same way with us in this new year. We need to learn to lean on the presence and power of God who goes with us. And so just want to ask you these questions. How will you rearrange your life in 2017 to fight your battles with sin by the power of the Spirit? How are you going to remind yourself that in Christ, the judgment of God has passed over you? How will you learn to stop thinking like a slave and remember that you're free? How will you keep focusing on your Father who goes before you in the wilderness instead of trying to lean on your own power? How will you be filled with the tambourine-smacking joy of the exodus throughout this year in a way that will free you from, from desire to sin? The truth is, guys, is that we got to do this together. They went out as a people. Um, and we got to do this together. And so for the next few weeks, what I'm going to do is we're going to go through a brief series and just talk about what's our life like together as a church? How do we live together as God's distinct people? And I would challenge some of you guys who aren't even Christians to come to this and, and come and see the church family from the inside. Sometimes, you know, what a person needs to do is to think, you know, like this may be true, I don't know. But they need to see it from the inside. They need to see how it works. They need to ask questions. Like we want you to be here for that. And then for those of you guys um, who are followers of Jesus, come ready like after church to have lunch with us. We'll go out to lunch. I'll have some questions for you guys each week. We'll go out to lunch together. We just discuss it. It's kind of like doing a small group, but you do it like immediately, right? You guys all eat, right? All of you guys eat, right, after church. We could eat together, you know, in little bands and discuss these things. And let's learn how to do this together. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you so much for your word and how, though this event is 4,000 years old, it still speaks powerfully to us today. Um, 
I was blown away by that. There's just so many things, Lord, as you know, in this passage that are so gripping and moving and applicable and lively in this 21st century. And we just pray, Lord, as we enter this year that we would continue to seek you through your word, continue to call out to you when we're in distress. And Lord, help us to learn to live together, to assist each other, to be a real help to each other along the way. Lord, the wilderness has many challenges. And Lord, we need each other. We pray that we would be a help to each other. Help us to love each other and serve each other and know each other and assist each other. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.